Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. What a beautiful song. Good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we left off a couple weeks ago. We're picking back up. We're going to start chapter 2 this morning. As you are finding 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm really excited to let you know that this, uh, in a couple weeks on Sunday, November 15th, we plan to, in a gradual way, resume children's ministry. And so, yeah, amen. Um, thank the Lord for our young ones and, and for just God's grace to us in giving us a a church full of children, pre-COVID, when we're fully stacked as a church, on any given Sunday, we have about 200 children or more that are here in this building, not in the sanctuary, from birth all the way up to uh, about 12 years of age or elementary school that are in the children's ministry rooms. And our plan is to resume, at least in a partial way, on November 15th, and I say partial, because we um, realize that many people are still not comfortable with regathering. And so a survey is going to be sent to the children's ministry volunteers that have been serving uh, this week, letting, getting uh, really your response as to whether or not you're willing to serve so that we know how many rooms we can, can fill out. Our plan is to begin partially with the ages of 12 months through uh, three years of age, all the way up to four. So babies... And then four years and up would still be in the sanctuary with us for a, a period of time. And it's going to be a kind of partial resumption. And that'll give us time to kind of work out the kinks. And then, Lord willing, as we get into the next year, more comfort and, and, and just the pandemic, Lord willing, will go away. And vaccines and all of that stuff will come along uh, again, Lord willing. And we'll be able to fully resume, hopefully, as soon as possible in 2021. So be on the lookout for that. Basically, just the action items are, if you're a servant, if you're volunteering in children's ministry already, be on the lookout for that survey that will be emailed out to you this week. Your timely response to that will help us prepare to know how many rooms we can serve. And again, it'll be a limited rollout of ages 12 months and walking all the way through three years of age. And then again, with the hope that we can resume in early part of 2021 with our full children's ministry, Lord willing. And thank you again, guys, just for your patience. Uh, it's, it's tough to be a young family with lots of kids. We have lots of people that represent that demographic. And just our patience and care for those families and understanding that children are going to wiggle a little bit and being patient with that has been a real grace. And so I'm grateful for just the church culture that we have developed here of grace and a church culture full of children. Praise the Lord. Also, just, just as we get into this text here, we're going to gather this Wednesday night for our member meeting, as Robert said. One of the primary things that we're going to do this Wednesday night is pray for our nation, uh, especially in this upcoming election. We're going to pray for God's grace and for us as Christians to have our hope set on the living God and not in any, any particular person. And so we're going to pray this Wednesday together as a congregation at our member meeting but then the subsequent Wednesdays leading up to November, we're going to have the sanctuary open. Of course, the church is always open throughout the week. But in particular, we're asking you if you feel so led to come during the day, if you can break away from work, 
to come here to the sanctuary and just pray for our nation, for God's grace to us, for, for his blessing on us as a people. Well, let's get into our text, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it. As you know, if you've been with us for a while, we've been working our way through this letter verse by verse. We find ourselves in what one of my theological and pastoral heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh-British pastor back in the mid-1900s. Uh, he passed away in 1981, I believe, somewhere around there. He called chapter 2 of 2 Peter the most terrible chapter in the Bible. So aren't you glad you came today? Let me read verses 1 through 3 and pray for us. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Well, he continues on, as we will in the coming weeks, with a, a poignant description of these leaders and their, their, their folly and the state that awaits them. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks. But let's focus on verses 1 through 3 this morning. And as I pray, pray with me. Lord, help us as we, as we engage this chapter, which if it was up to us, if we were just picking and choosing things to preach on or teach on or listen to, we, we might be tempted to skip over, skip over chapter 2. But your word tells us that all of your word, every single word, every jot, every tittle, is for our good, for our edification. It's breathed out by you. It's inerrant. It's without air. It's inspired by you. It's given to us through your Bible writers, through the prophets in the Old Testament, and through the apostles in the New, that we might grow, that we might be corrected and reproved and built up and nourished, that we might feed on your word, that we might, by your word, be drawn to the incarnate word, Jesus himself, that we might know him and trust in him and be reconciled to you. So Lord, help us with this chapter. Help us to be discerning people and help me as I explain this chapter to these people that I am as a shepherd along with the other shepherds of this church responsible for. So Lord, give us your wisdom, I pray. And Lord, give us, give us grace. Give me grace. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a burden as I've been thinking about this chapter. Really, chapter 2 is it's the spine of 2 Peter. Chapter 2 really is the purpose of why Peter writes this letter. He's very concerned about false teachers who were plaguing the churches that he was writing to. And in his first letter, 1 Peter, he's worried about persecution really on the outside. And he's wanting people to be... Uh, fortified so that they can endure persecution from an increasingly hostile Roman Empire, which in just years after Peter would write his letter starts to kill Christians, starts to send them to the Colosseum to be devoured by lions. But here in his second letter, Peter is, is really writing with the burden of preparing the church to be discerning against 
false teachers that are rising up within the church. And so this whole book, this whole letter, especially chapter 2, is particularly, the word is polemic. If you're not familiar with that word, it means it's an argument, it's an attack, it's a defense of false Uh, against false teachers, a defense of the truth against false teaching, and so it's argumentative in its nature. That's what chapter 2 really is. In fact, that's most of what 2 Peter is. As I mentioned, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this is one of the most terrible and terrifying chapters in the whole Bible. He says that anyone, I love this, anyone who enjoys reading a chapter like this must surely be abnormal. That's what Lloyd-Jones says about you if you're just, you're just, yeah, let's get into this. But he says it has to be faced. And here's our particular challenge as we read and as we dwell on and as we work through in the coming weeks. A chapter like chapter 2 of Second Peter is that we are a culture and a society that is allergic to certainty and authority. We live in a world that just wants everyone to get along, that the highest value, sometimes religiously in our culture, is pluralism. Let's just all agree with one another and hold hands and sing kumbaya. And anybody that takes a stand and says, no, that is wrong and this is right, anybody that is willing to critique what they deem to be error according to the Scripture, and what the Scripture calls error, is seen to be as unloving and uncharitable and sometimes even viewed in our fallen culture as unchristian. Now, that can be the case. Right, faithful Christians can be unloving and uncharitable, certainly. But that doesn't mean that just because some people are like that, that it means that we should just throw our hands up in the air and never be discerning and never take a stand and never be clear and never be, as the Bible calls us here in 2 Peter chapter 2, polemic or defensive of good doctrine. And at times, the most loving thing to do is to be utterly and seriously clear about what is right and wrong. The Bible is not afraid of that at all, and Christians shouldn't be either. That's the challenge that we face, and we live in a situation where we are in the middle of a great war. That's been the case since Adam and Eve in the garden. The context of the Bible is a great spiritual battle. It is not merely just a few verses and tips which you can put on a shirt or put on a placard and hang on a wall that are cute phrases that give us warm and fuzzies. The Bible is a story. It's an epic story of God's redemption of His people through His Son and how the Lord in His kingdom triumphs over evil, which, by the way, He is sovereignly in control of and in His grand and mysterious purposes, which we cannot fully understand, has allowed so that His glory might be displayed in supreme measure. The Bible paints life in this world as a great battle that the Lord wins with no doubt, but it is a war. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this situation that we face. He says, there is no easy optimism to be found in the New Testament. There is no vague general superficiality. All along, its, a message, its message is of one preparing us for conflict of enabling us to realize the nature of the conflict. It will not 
allow us to escape. Indeed, its great theme is that the one great danger is that we will allow the world in various ways to make us forget it. And that's what 2 Peter chapter 2 is given to do. It's meant to be a kind of ammonia, a smelling salt, underneath our nostrils so that we would wake up and realize that we do not live in a neutral world. He tells us in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, that we have an enemy that prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he does that through false teaching. So, he goes on, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say that the great need of our age is discernment. And listen to these words before we work through our text, again from Martin Lloyd-Jones. About this chapter, he says, in other words, he would have us, meaning Peter, really ultimately the Holy Spirit through Peter, In other words, he would have us realize and understand that the fight, meaning the spiritual battle of the Christian life, can be so hot and difficult that there will be times when even Christian people will begin to feel almost hopeless and will wonder what is taking place and will be tempted to listen to the innuendos of the evil one. Now, friends, I think many of us at various times in our life, maybe many of us even right now, are vulnerable to that. The the battle can be so hot that we're tempted to listen to the evil one. So let's look at our text. Four truths, I think, that this text gives us, at a minimum, about false teachers. And and buckle up, because we're going to hunker down in chapter 2. And chapter 2 is a challenging chapter, but it's for our good, and we're going to be in it for a few weeks. But here in verse, verses 1 through 3, I think we see, at a minimum, four truths about false teachers. Let's look at verse 1 again. He says, Peter, false prophets also arose among the people. So he's talking about in the Old Testament there that there were false prophets, and you can read Deuteronomy in particular, Deuteronomy chapter 13, other places in Jeremiah, really all throughout the Old Testament. There's this warning about false prophets, and that's always been the case. Really, there was a false prophet in the garden when the serpent spoke to Eve and said, did God really say, really, the devil himself is the the first false prophet wanting to bring doubt in the hearts and minds of God's people so that they would be swayed away from trusting God. And Peter here in verse 1 is saying that this has always been the case. False prophets also arose among the people. He's speaking retroactively of the Old Testament. And then he says, just as there will be false teachers among you. So there was in days of old, and there will be now among you, and in the future there will be false teachers who will, listen to how he describes them, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So that's truth number one, is that false teachers are deceptive. They're secretive. They don't announce themselves as false teachers. False teachers disguise themselves. And sometimes they do this unwittingly. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is, is defending his ministry against the false apostles that were challenging his authority as a true apostle. And listen to a few words about Paul's description of his opponents that were false teachers. So really what Paul is speaking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is a fulfillment of what Peter said is going to happen in the church. False teachers will arise. And they were. They were challenging Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1, 
I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, meaning Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, he's saying you're, you're, you're taking in this false teaching, and it's cunning. It's, it's the serpent is coming like he came to Eve in a deceitful and cunning way. And then at the end of that chapter, in verses 13 and 15, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, listen to this, verse 14, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their, to their deeds. So Paul there is saying that, that false teachers are going to disguise themselves. Satan doesn't jump out from behind a rock wearing a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. He disguises himself as an angel of light, and the servants of Satan do the same. But these, these false teachers, not only are they deceptive, but oftentimes they are, in fact, I think most of the time in our setting, they are deceived themselves. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, a kind of description of the spiritual state of man before salvation and a description of the world, really. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And if you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, you should be very familiar with this passage. Paul says here, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So when you see that phrase, the prince of the power of the air, you might be immediately inclined to think, oh, well, that's speaking of something good. But that's speaking of the devil. He's the prince of the power of the air. God in his sovereignty has handed over really a fallen creation to a kind of subordinate rule of Satan over this fallen world for a time. And, and he is at work in the sons of disobedience. And who are the sons of disobedience? It's all fallen people. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so do you see what's going on here is this great spiritual battle. Mankind has rebelled against God and sin has not just neutralized us or made us less than optimal. It has spiritually incapacitated us. It's killed us. That's why Paul says there that we're dead in our trespasses, which means we are unable to do anything to change our spiritual state. And we are under the sway. We are under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, who is at work in a fallen world to bring about his plans. He's working. He's working through people, regardless of whether or not they realize it or not. So don't take this to an extreme. Don't go to your friend that doesn't know the Lord and think that they're Satan incarnate or demon-possessed. It just literally means that this fallen world is under the sway of the evil one, and false teachers, certainly, whether they realize it or not, are doing the devil's business. 
even though they may be very sincere, they're being used by the enemy. And so because false teachers are deceptive and secretive, one of the greatest needs, and this will come up all throughout our chapter 2 as we look at it, one of the greatest needs in the church is discernment, wisdom. We need to know what is true and what isn't. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 5, verse 14. The solid food is for the mature. I think he's speaking about the good teaching of the Bible. Solid food, good teaching, clear teaching, true teaching for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What does it mean when he says the powers of discernment trained? It means living the Christian life in community, submitted to God's word, taking in God's word, being in community, listening to faithful teaching, prayer, fellowship, word. I think that's what the powers of discernment are. God gives us through the means of simple graces like the Bible, community, his spirit dwelling in us. He gives us the ability to discern that we put into practice good from evil. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, a famous verse, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed, be renewed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, by knowing good from evil, you may discern, you may understand, you may know, it will be clear to you what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we need discernment because false teachers do not announce themselves. Secondly, Peter says in our chapter that false teachers are destructive. Look at the end of verse 1, middle part there. He says that there will be false teachers among you who will bring in destructive heresies. So the need, the, 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 the impetus, the point of chapter 2 is the urgency of these, these false teachings that will come in and they will cause harm. It's not a small matter Peter's concerned with here. These heresies, this wrong teaching that Peter is concerned with is destructive to the church. He calls it destructive heresies. And what do we mean by heresy? Heresy is any, here's a kind of definition of heresy. It's an error. It's a theological, doctrinal error so serious that it can potentially cut a person off from a saving understanding of the gospel. Now, there's theological error, and there are differing theological opinions about all sorts of matters, and we should be careful about not calling people who just disagree with us on secondary matters as heretics. All theological error or misunderstanding is not heresy. What's in view here is error that is so serious that it will potentially cut a person off from a saving understanding of the gospel. Things like the nature of God, who He is as sovereign, good, and triune. That's primary. To misunderstand that would potentially lead a person into a heretical view of God. The misunderstanding of who Christ is as truly man and truly God, fully, in a mysterious way, joined together, is primary biblical truth. And to misunderstand that is an error that will lead a person away from a saving understanding of the gospel. This is the error of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and many others throughout history who have denied either the full deity or the full humanity of Christ. 
a misunderstanding of mankind and who we are as sinners by nature because of our rebellion can lead a person away from the right understanding of the gospel because if you don't understand the problem that we are sinners dead in our sins at odds with the holy God needing his gracious intervention if we just need improvement you will not if you don't understand the problem you won't rightly understand the solution the exclusivity of the gospel the reality of eternity either with Christ or separated from him in judgment forever, the, the reality of heaven and hell, and the reality of the inspiration of the Bible are all primary doctrines that when attacked can lead a person away from a saving understanding of the gospel of Christ. Secondary things like baptism or the nature of church government or differing views about end times and many other things, while very important in the life of a church, Christians, faithful Christians through the century have disagreed on them, and to disagree with one another on those type of issues does not mean that we are heretics. But Peter here is focused on destructive heresies, and he gives us a kind of an anatomy of how this subtle destruction works in a church. He says that through their sensuality, look what he says there in in verse 2, he says many will follow their sensuality. There's this false teachers are often marked by a kind of carnality. And I think we see it in our culture today, a kind of slickness, a kind of, a kind of self-centeredness where they are very, and I'm not saying that somebody that's like this is necessarily a false teacher, but I would say have your radar up when the presentation of the teaching of the church is so slick and so, so well-polished that it unwittingly and sometimes wittingly ends up actually drawing attention to the person or the ministry rather than God. What is that? That's a kind of carnality and sensuality that unless it's corrected, unless it's understood and noticed, and unless it's, it's spoken against, can eventually lead a group of people or a ministry or a teacher who otherwise might be faithful into a kind of self-absorption which will lead people away from Christ. And friends, in our media-driven age where everybody has a slick website and an awesome YouTube channel, this is a problem where everybody wants to present pretty people saying pretty things. It becomes very attractive to a culture like us who's addicted to pretty and slick. Now, I'm not saying pretty and slick are necessarily heretical, but they will pave the way for people to accepting it because they're, they're allured by the form rather than the content. And let's just admit that as Americans who like stuff to be nice, we, we, are, we are at a disadvantage. Our discernment meter is often low in this area. He also says, what does Peter say? He says that they will be sensual and they will lead many astray and that the way, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And so they're very slick. They seem to be very helpful in their presentation of the teaching. And because they seem to be very helpful and they seem to be very credible and they are oftentimes very, very gifted communicators who put together a very, very appealing sort of presentation on a stage with lots of 
seemingly together people who also have various gifts, lots of gifts in, in presentation and music and all sorts of things, and organization. All of those things are not necessarily bad. But when coupled together, when the driving force of that type of teaching is church growth and the promotion of personalities and pragmatism just tips to help you live better, it paves the way to make those people vulnerable to heresy. And the way of truth is blasphemed. And you see this in, in many contemporary churches today where things like a biblical view of marriage or a biblical view of gender or a biblical view of human sexuality are just increasingly being jettisoned as part of an older culture that doesn't apply now. And now we live in a culture where probably the majority of our culture, certainly the majority of our political culture, would say that a biblical understanding of gender and a biblical understanding of human sexuality is, it qualifies as hate speech. And what is that? That is, that's a slow heresy that is causing the way of truth to be blasphemed. Now, of course, as biblical Christians, and we understand that God made male and female, and we understand a biblical understanding of human sexuality, we also understand sin, and so we also have to realize that we want to be very gracious to people who are, who are uh, uh, confused, and we want to be loving. And obviously, there have been times when people in the name of faithful Christianity have oftentimes been very unloving in their communication of biblical truth. We understand that. And that just muddies the waters for people like us who want to be gracious but clear. We want to stand on truth and grace. And so we have, a, we have over here to the right, we have some crazies who are very unloving in their communication of biblical truth. And over here to the left, we have a culture that is increasingly calling faithful biblical Christianity and its understanding of all sorts of things as hate speech. And this, this is a spiritual battle that Lloyd-Jones says can get so hot and it can get so difficult to be a person in the world that you go into that battle day after day and you'll get tired and before you know it, you just find yourself saying, you know what, I just want to get by, I just want to keep my job, I just want to get promoted to E6, I just want to be a company commander, I just want to do this. And so you just kind of lose your resolve and before you know it, five, ten years later, you deny the very things that years ago you would stand on. And that's the slow, subtle drift of how the world weighs us down. That's how false teachers work. It's a slow ebb. It's a slow drip. And it says here, another final word he says about how this destructive heresy comes. He says they're sensual, the way of truth is blasphemed, and he says in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And this is just another description, I think, of, of much of American Christianity, and I put it in air quotes, because much of American Christianity isn't Christianity at all. In their greed, they will exploit you. I think one of the great drivers, and again, I'm, not, I'm trying to be clear. I don't want you to think I'm angry or mad, and I'm just trying to be helpful. I'm trying to preach the text. I'm trying to be sober and serious. 
and gracious. But I think one of the great problems, and I've said this before, in American church culture is, is that we have adopted the values of American pragmatism. Now, one of the things that makes America this, this nation that is very, very fruitful and has been used by God in wonderful ways in our short history as a nation is that we're very, uh, we're very uh, uh, pragmatic. We get things done. We, we, we solve problems. We just do things. We're, 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 we're just problem solvers as a nation, and, and I, you know, that's owing to God's blessing and all sorts of things. But that sort of whatever-it-takes mentality that can be helpful as a, a culture, it, it has some real problems if you, if you take it without discernment over into the spiritual realm because if you bring that kind of whatever it takes, if the, if the bottom line is just bigger is better, more people is better, more this is a sign of God's blessing, more money, more people, more, 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 then if that becomes the ultimate thing, it will feed, and I see this happening, it feeds the ego of pastors because leaders, all leaders struggle with ego, and they will, it will be, their greed won't necessarily be health and wealth. We all understand the falseness of the prosperity gospel, but there's a more subtle form of the prosperity gospel, which we are much more prone to. We watch these clowns and these charlatans on TBN, and we say, oh, that's ridiculous. How could somebody believe that? But we will flock to churches and teaching where the greed is not in material wealth, but it's in a claim and notoriety, and it, the pressure on these preachers to just say what people want to hear so that they can keep the engine running is fierce and strong. And biblical teaching, like the sovereignty of God and salvation, or the biblical view of human gender and sexuality, will cut your crowd. It won't grow it. And there's a kind of greed then that seeps in even unwittingly into the hearts of America's pastors and they exploit people with false words, and they build churches around their vibe or their personality. But when life gets hard or the culture starts hating Christianity, they side with culture rather than the Bible, and they look down the end of their nose at their older brothers and sisters in the church for their biblical view of Christianity. Friends, that happens all the time. And yes, Christians in our sphere, in our stream that believe the Bible are oftentimes hypocritical. We get that. So doesn't it just add to the mess of what it means to live faithfully today? This side is going liberal. This side is cranky and unhelpful. And here we are in the middle just trying to be faithful, winsome, wise, discerning Christians who believe what God says in the midst of a dark world. Friends, again, Lloyd-Jones says, the battle can get so hot and so fierce and so unrelenting that it can cause you to lose resolve. That's why the New Testament, Paul's letters in particular, are full of the admonition, do not lose heart. And oh, by the way, that's why we need to gather that's why church is so important because we come together on a regular basis and we are strengthened by our fellowship even though the preaching is sometimes just and often especially when I'm preaching is just average and mediocre every now and again I'll hit a double off the wall but usually it's a bloop single to write but the power is in the faithfulness of God's word 
the commitment of God's people, and we are together reminding ourselves of holding fast to what God has said as we go back out into a world that's against us week after week. But if you live the type of Christian life where church is optional to you, where fellowship is optional to you, and you show up every now and again, friends, you do not stand a chance because the oven is hotter out there than you're able to stand by yourself. I see it happen all the time. Somebody's on fire for the Lord. They come, they be part of the church, and then they slowly drift away because things aren't as exciting as they once thought they would be. And what happens to them, they are pulled away by the, the, the drift, the undercurrent of culture. And before you know it, you, never, you can't even recognize that person. And they're even denying the faith. That's how heresies destroy. They're destructive. Thirdly, false teachers deny Christ. They deny Christ. Now, there's this tricky little statement in here. Maybe you caught it. Verse 1. Look again at verse 1. He says that there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Listen to this now. Peter says, even denying the master, speaking of Jesus, who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then later on in the chapter, he's talking about the judgment that will surely befall false teachers. And so what's going on there? He's saying that Jesus has bought these teachers. That is redemptive language. That's language of salvation, that Jesus has redeemed them from sin. And here clearly it seems to state that they then deny him and face their eventual destruction and judgment and separation from God forever. So what are we to make of Peter saying that those who deny Christ, whom he bought, eventually fall away? The question is, can a true believer who has been bought by Christ finally and fully fall away and deny Christ? In other words, can a, can a believer lose their salvation really is, is the question that, that we need to answer. And the answer to that is no. Now, there's much more we need to say about this. This issue is going to come up again at the end of the chapter where Peter's going to say that it would be better off if these false teachers never knew the way of righteousness. And so the question comes up again, like did they know, were they saved, what's going on there? That topic is so important that it deserves a sermon in and of itself, and so we're going to handle that at the end of chapter 2. But let me just say briefly that, that I don't think that's what Peter is saying here because the Bible does not contradict itself. It's completely true. And Peter himself said in his first, leader, first, first letter, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance, that's meaning heaven, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And we read this morning earlier, Robert read from John chapter 10, Jesus' words, where Jesus says, I give them, speaking of his sheep who hear his voice, which is all true Christians, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one, even including themselves, will snatch them out of my hand. 
And then Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30, one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible, and those, speaking of all Christians, whom he predestined, he also called. So everybody that he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So everybody that is called and saved is also justified. And those whom he justified, every one of them, he also glorified, past tense. And so there's, a, there's an airtight chain of salvation there that says that all those who are truly born again will ultimately be brought all the way home to glory by God. Those verses do not contradict what Peter is saying in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. But we need to do some work on understanding that better, and we're going to get to that at the end of this chapter, where we're really going to understand and dig into this issue of eternal security and how that fits with Peter's warning here to false chapters in 2 Peter chapter 2. But let's not miss what I think is the primary point for us to think about right now, is that false teachers, they deny Christ. They deny Christ. And that's a hallmark of false teaching. They subtly deny the gospel itself. To deny Christ is to deny who he is, what he has done, as the only way by which a person can be made right with God. And that's the utter definition of a heresy. Remember, heresy is an error that is so serious that it cuts a person off from a saving understanding of the gospel. And there's heresies, as I mentioned, that are obvious and clear, like a denial of the deity of Jesus, denial of the Trinity, a denial of the sufficiency of Christ's work as sufficient alone for salvation. In fact, that's the heir of, of really the Catholics, uh, Catholic Church's false understanding of the gospel. That's why the Protestant Reformation was, was fought in the 1500s, because the church up to that point, and still to this day the Catholic Church, in their clouded and misunderstanding of the gospel, teaches that Jesus' work on the cross is not sufficient to justify a person, that you need to add things to it, like baptism or good works, that those complete the receiving of grace. And many other groups teach these things, and those things are false. It's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. But there's more subtle ways that false teachers today deny Christ. They lack, and this is one way that happens all the time. A denial of Christ is not just an outright saying that Jesus isn't the only way to salvation or Jesus wasn't enough for salvation. Very few false teachers will actually say that. Remember, there's a, there's a spirit, a, 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 an evil one that is working in these people who are often unaware to cause their ministries to go off kilter so that they bring in secretly false teaching in the church. And one of the ways they do that is to not keep the work of Christ central in the life of the church. And that, in a kind of second-handed, subtle, at times even unaware way, is in itself a denial of Christ. It's a denial of the sufficiency of the gospel. And many churches do this, dear ones. They may not intend to, but they do. And in its subtlety, it is oftentimes even more dangerous than obvious false teaching. And how does this happen? It's It's people who would confess 
The same things that we would confess doctrinally, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that the gospel, that Jesus, that God is holy. Listen to this, dear ones. If, you don't, if you've never heard this before, if you're new, if you're just investigating church and Christianity, listen to this. Here's the good news of the gospel. It is that God is holy, and he's created all that is. And in his providence and in his sovereignty and in his plan, he created mankind in his image to be the stewards over his creation. But we all fell. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's command and fell. They sinned. And that sin brought God's judgment. That sin cut us off from God, who alone is life. And so we are separated from God, which means to be in sin, which means we're dead in our sins. We are now as mankind, as people, all of us, everybody that's come from Adam and Eve, which is all of us in this room, are unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. That's what it means to be dead in sin. But God, in his kindness, because of his plan, sent his son Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. This was God's plan all along, to come and become a man and to live a perfect life where all of us have rebelled and broken God's law. Jesus, fully God, fully man, lives a perfect life as a man and lays down his life willingly on the cross to substitute himself, to bear God's wrath for our sin. And because he is infinitely holy, he has enough holiness and righteousness to bear and satisfy the wrath of God for all of the sin of all of his people. And so on the cross, Jesus dies as a sacrificial substitute erasing, taking, removing the judgment for his people. And he rises again in victory because he's perfect. He's, he's vindicated by God. God rises him from, raises him from the grave. And now Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. And those who repent and believe, you might say, well, how can we repent and believe because our hearts are dead? Jesus gives those that the Father has given him. God has given Jesus a people, and he gives them a new heart. He takes a dead heart. This is the glory of the gospel. This is why you are saved by Christ alone and not your own works. There are hearts that are dead. When God determines to save a person, he gives them a new heart, and he enables them to believe what he commands them to believe. And they are saved, and now they rise from their spiritual death, and they now live in this new life that they are enabled to live, which he has given his word to instruct them how to live in the newness of life. And that message isn't just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the whole, it's the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. So the way we fight sin years after we come to faith in Jesus is remembering what he has done with our sin so that we might take that armed with the good news of the gospel, the grace of the gospel that doesn't just forgive us our sins but empowers us to fight sin. And we fight our sin and this world around us by remembering who we are and what God has done for us in Christ. And that, that message is the message of the church. Everything that we talk about, every scripture in some way is tying back to that. 
And so the way heresy, the way false teachers deny Christ is they will confess everything that I've just said to you and say, oh yes, you need to trust in Christ alone for your right standing with God. That's the beginning of the Christian life. But now let's get into all this other stuff like how to be a better leader and how to, how to overcome anger. And they don't tether all these things to the work of Christ on the cross as the only means by which you're saved and by which you live. And so the message of the cross is seen as a kind of necessary exchange for the beginning of the Christian life to be set on the shelf, and now let's talk about all these little helpful things about how to be awesome people and have a better Tuesday. That's a denial of the cross. It's a denial of Christ. And the church is full. It's full of really gifted communicators and really big churches who I think in unaware and subtle ways do not center their preaching and teaching and the life of the church on the finished work of Christ and a gospel-tethered, gospel-centered understanding of the Bible. And oftentimes, a characteristic of those type of churches, not necessarily all churches that do this, but a characteristic of those type of churches is they jump around with topical teaching. They do a seven-week series on relationships, a seven-week series on managing your money, a seven-week series on living, you know, being a better whatever. And they grab, what they do is they cherry-pick verses, and the pastor starts with a topic that he thinks will be helpful to the people, and the things that he says may very well be helpful. They may be true things, but they're not central things. They're not tethered to the gospel. And they build the life of the church around topical preaching, and they never get to chapters like Romans 9 that says God will have compassion on whom he will have compassion, and he will save whom he will save. They never deal with hard texts like 2 Peter chapter 2. They never deal with 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it talks about human sexuality and how those who refuse God's plan for human sexuality, whether heterosexual or homosexual, if they stay in that sin, will be judged by God and separated from him for eternity. Nobody teaches a topical message on 1 Corinthians 6. And so do you see how they may confess these things, but they build the church around pragmatism and helpful messages that are only truly ultimately helpful in leading a person away from the conviction of the gospel. And finally, I end on this. False teachers are doomed. False teachers are doomed. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They're, they will be judged. God will fill every valley. He will level every mountain. He will right every wrong. He will correct every injustice. He will throw down every false teaching. He will destroy every argument that's exalted against him. That will happen. We live, though, in an age where the full consummation of that certain victory is not yet fully realized. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. God will surely judge. He will make all things right. And a question that we may ask, and I think this is a valid question before we come to the table, is that why would God allow this confusion? Why would he allow this deception? I, I ask that question all the time. I, I wrestle with that question a lot. Lord, wh what are your plans on this? Why, why have you allowed good people who want to know the Lord to be drawn away or to be influenced or to be hindered or to be confused by these false teachers? 
false teaching in general. Why? The only real biblical answer I have for that, I think, is found in Romans chapter 9, and it's not an easy answer, it's a hard answer, but it's a good answer, and it's a biblical answer, is that God has purposes for even allowing the fall that go beyond our full ability to understand, but ultimately rest in the display of His glory in all the universe. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 23, some of the hardest verses in the Bible, but... But if we can settle, if we can subordinate all of our questions, if we can rest on this view of God, it, it, it will be good for our soul. And this is what Paul says. In the context of Romans chapter 9, he's talking about God's sovereign right to choose whomever he will choose to save based on his free grace, not based on anything in that person, not based on foreseen faith, not based on any goodness, not based on any, any activity in the person, but simply because of his grace. And Paul answering the objection that he knows our human heart would have, well, God, how can you hold us accountable then if you're going to do what you're going to do because you're the glorious, sovereign, free God? And how does Paul answer our objections? Really, the ultimate objection is, God, why would you even allow the fall? Why would you allow some people to go to hell? Why would you allow false teachers to dissuade people from the truth? And listen to what Paul says. Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercies, mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? In other words, God is so sovereign that he's sovereign over a world that he is allowed to fall. He's sovereign over individual souls. He's sovereign over false teachers. And he's sovereign over the process. He's sovereign over the fight that we're in right now. And all of it in some way, which we can't fully understand from this moment, will ultimately end in the maximum display of his glory in all things. And we rest in that. And that rest in that picture of God firms us, puts our feet on a firm foundation where we can fight and discern and walk together and resist false teaching. Well, let's now come to the Lord's table. And when we come to the table, this isn't just a, a tradition. This isn't just something we do on the first Sunday of every month. We're coming really to confess what we believe, that Jesus, this bread and this cup, is our only hope, that He is not only our salvation, but He is our life. He's the way that we live. He's our hope. He's, he's saved us from our past. He's empowering our present reality, and He has secured our future. And we come knowing that we need Him. We need this bread in John chapter 6, Jesus says that this bread of life, which is, which is him, comes down from heaven, and, and we must feast on him. How do we combat false teachers? How do we grow in discernment? By feasting on Christ and his word. By living together. By asking for God's help. And so let's do that now as we come to this table. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the ushers are going to be prepared to serve us. And when you're ready to come to the usher closest to you as they wave your row, you come. And then hold on to the elements. Again, these are our, 
our pandemic uh, communion packets where we're, the top little tear-off is a little wafer of bread, and then the second layer that you can tear is the juice underneath that. As you take a cup and as you go back to your seat, hold on to these elements, and then Robert will come and lead us to receive communion together. But let's wait for one another. When you are ready, go to the table closest to you. Let's be patient with one another. Paul says that we should examine our ways before we come to this table, that we should consider one another, that we should remember the gospel. And we come to this table not because of our relative righteousness this week, but because we look away from our righteousness. We look away from our past week. We look away from our past month, and we look to what Christ has done for his people. And we remember him, and we feast on Christ. So let me pray as we come to the table. Lord, help us now. As we journey through this difficult chapter, make us discerning people. Make us wise. Make us a a biblical combination of compassion and courage and resolve and conviction. We don't want to be angry people who point fingers at Christians maybe who have a a bad understanding of, of important truth. We want to be we want to care deeply for our brothers and sisters, and we want, to, we want to fear you more than we fear man. And so give us a biblical combination of resolve and humility. And Lord, train our ears to truth. You, you, Jesus in the gospel says that the Spirit will come, the Helper will come, and He will lead his people into all truth. Lord, do that in this church. Guard us from false teaching. Guard us from giving our ears to things that will draw us away. And help us now as we come to this table to remember your son and what he has done and to remember one another and to love one another and to wait on one another, to prefer one another and to resolve to live this life together as a local church family. I pray, Lord, that you would do this all in Jesus' name. Amen.